News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What can neighborhoods and communities do about what seems to be the increasing proliferation of graffiti? Lots of people say they've seen more of this during the pandemic. Well, over in the city of Nanaimo, they had a tagger who was doing so much of this, so much tagging around that city, that they'd had enough. He'd done something like approximately 450 tags using his moniker. So, you know, they tracked him down. And now it turns out, well, he's leaving his signature on legal documents because the city went after him in civil court and got $15,000 from him and an apology and they have to write a letter to the you know people of Nanaimo and all of that. And it's made some other city kind of sit up and take notice and think, is this something that we should think about doing? Forget the criminal cases. Should we be going after these taggers in civil court? Well, for more on this story now, we're joined by Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Do you like this idea? Yeah, you know, actually, it's it's something that we proposed uh, back in the spring, and uh, I believe it passed unanimously at council because we have seen a, a pretty dramatic uptick in, in particular, the sort of nuisance graffiti that uh, folks might know as tagging. So it's it's really just the moniker. This isn't even the sort of more artistic graffiti. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's um, there's quite a bit of new technology that that uh, is being used to sort of identify tags and and catalog them using sort of machine learning and kind of a, a computer image search and uh and they've used it quite successfully to uh you know kind of track where the graffiti happens when the graffiti happens who is doing what and then in the event that they catch them they actually can throw some pretty significant fines uh in the case of vancouver we also sort of considered an option for like a restorative justice kind of approach recognizing that maybe some of the folks doing graffiti um, may need a, a, a different kind of direction and channel, and they may be low income or unable to pay a, a significant fine. And, you know, we're not going to throw people in jail kind of an approach uh, if we can find some kind of alternate measure to kind of restorative right. justice style. Does that work, though? Have those approaches worked, do you think? Or is there still a problem in Vancouver? Well, we haven't done it in Vancouver yet, so I would say there's still a pretty significant problem. It's worked in other jurisdictions, but certainly in Vancouver, and especially since the pandemic, we've seen a dramatic uptick um, in graffiti. And in particular, uh, we've seen a really disturbing rise in sort of uh, racist graffiti, uh, anti-Asian graffiti, that kind of thing. So we've we've definitely, we have some programs in place that, that um, you know, if there's any kind of hate or racist graffiti, it's immediately removed uh, by the city. Um, but otherwise, we, we, we've invested an additional half a million dollars uh, to support uh, BIAs uh, for doing more sort of graffiti intervention of just the regular kind. And, and the work that we did in the spring, we also sort of asked staff to find options for sanctioned graffiti areas, recognizing that, you know, there is an artistic component to graffiti, there's an expression component. And we've seen in other jurisdictions where these sort of sanctioned graffiti zones have actually worked out really well and become kind of, you know, Instagrammable tourist draws in their own right. Right. So and we're also looking for those kind of options. Yeah. So then what, what are the next steps here then, Councillor Fry? So is Vancouver considering this? I know a lot of shop, like people, shop owners, all of that, they're, they're quite frustrated with what's been going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we haven't uh, gotten a report back from staff um, since we passed that resolution, but that was some of the direction to, you know, have bylaw officers equipped with the ability to sort of track this 
obviously our police are, are stretched pretty thin with a lot of, of criminal activity. So I don't expect that this is a, a policing matter per se, but I think that we do have to definitely send a signal that, um, you know, that, that, that we can't continue to tolerate this degree. Not that we have been tolerating, but I think that we need to put a, a, a more, uh, a tighter focus on, on dealing with some of this nuisance graffiti. And, and one of the pieces that uh, I'd also like to see us really push forward is, is an education component because what we've heard with especially some of these prolific taggers who get picked up and and with this technology and they've sort of cataloged how many tags they've done they have no idea the extent to which they've done that it's it's just a compulsion they don't sort of see it and 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 remember it per se and they don't think of it as a as as a crime so you know we need to educate folks that this isn't a victimless crime that this actually ends up costing small businesses a significant amount of money to remediate and, and deal with on top of the stress and anxiety of trying to, you know, run a business during a, during a pandemic. And, and it, and it really does have some pretty significant impacts on the folks that it affects. And certainly we see that a lot in Chinatown. Um, and I bring yeah. up Chinatown because I live nearby and I've seen the extent of the racist graffiti and I've talked to, you know, a lot of the elders in the community who are running, you know, various society buildings and that kind of thing. And they just don't understand why they're being targeted so uh, so frequently with, yeah. with this sort of nuisance tagging, and as soon as they paint over it, it's boom, it's back up again. Do so, you think? Do you think part of the problem then has been that we thought of this as a policing problem, right? That oh, we need to crack down in kind of a criminal fashion, and do we now need to say, okay, no, no, there, are, we need to take these civil steps. We need to really crack down in a civil fashion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's we we have that ability, and I think we need to be a little bit more assertive with that. And like I say, uh, you know, more of an education component, so that it's not seen as a victimless crime. Um, and then there's there's options for I think one of the other big pieces is um, it, I mean, obviously catching somebody doing graffiti is going to be a challenge. It's by its very nature, it's done sort of in secrecy and in the dead of night, and it's quick and dirty. Um, so we do have other interventions that we could sort of encourage folks as well. So there is uh, a city of Vancouver free paint program, uh, partnership with Dulux that you can get paint to paint over, uh, if you're, if you, if you're having this sort of nuisance graffiti and you can get free paint. Um, and obviously we've, we've stepped up sort of, uh, some resources to our business improvement association so that they have more ability to address some of this explosion of graffiti that we're seeing, especially downtown. Right, but is it time? So do you it's think it's going to take a multifaceted approach? Right, so is it time though to step it up? Do you think? Yeah, I do think so. Yeah. All right, we'll see what happens. Listen, thank yeah. you very much for your time this morning. All right, great, thanks. This is mornings with Simi. Today at noon, we will hear from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Ronnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. This is the COVID nineteen briefing for the province. Given that it's coming after a long weekend, too, will those numbers be higher? What can we potentially expect to hear? Well, joining us now is Dr. Sarah Otto, actually professor and mathematical biologist at UBC. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. Are, are you a little apprehensive, perhaps, about the numbers we might be hearing about today? You know, today is too early to see any effects of Thanksgiving, but I am still apprehensive. We always, uh, I've, we've been watching the number of cases in kids rising, and that's of concern. So I think if we continue to see the same ballpark numbers, five, six, seven hundred, that we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks, then that's going to be good news. But to see the effects of Thanksgiving, it's going to take until next week. It takes about ten days to to 
to see the effects, um, both in terms of the cases and the cases that they cause, and then they go in and get tested. So it's a little bit of a delay. Right. Now, we haven't talked to you in a while, and I know that usually, you know, when there's rising case rates, there is concern, but it's been fairly steady. What do you think of what we've seen in our numbers in the last, you know, three, four weeks? You know, I'm so grateful. Hold on a second. I'm just going to... Okay, then we'll stop. Um, I'm so grateful that we bent down the curve because we were on the same trajectory that Saskatchewan and Alberta were on, and we were going to be overwhelmed. But um, the province stepped in. They did the localized health orders in places like Central Okanagan, where the cases were really high, and the mass mandate, of course. And that bent down our curve and made, and made it possible for us to ride this Delta wave. It's still a lot of cases, six, 700 a day. But not at the level that they're witnessing in Alberta and Saskatchewan where the hospitals are being overwhelmed. So um, I kudos to, to those measures, which really saved us. Right. It's interesting, your language there, though, you said we're riding this wave. We're not bending that yeah. curve all the way down. Instead, we're kind of surfing no. it at a lower level. Yeah. You know, at this point, COVID is here with us to stay. And I think the, that it's very clear that people... Um, are either going to be immune because they get vaccinated or immune because they're going to get COVID over the next couple of years. So we do, we will be riding it out. It is a question of how fast and how steeply, whether the hospitals get overwhelmed. And, you know, I know, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I hope you had a good time. I know a lot of people got vaccinated in order to be with their family. And I, and that's the main message I'd like to give today is that it is a way for us to give thanks and to be with our family and to be with our loved ones in a safe way if we get vaccinated. So I know a lot of people did in order to meet up with family and uh, protect them. And I think that's, that's just so much of a safer way Mm -hmm. to get immune to COVID than to get the disease itself, which lands people in hospital at a 30 times higher rate. um, And it's just so um, severe in several cases. Did we act fast enough, though? Like now we're talking about, you know, work mandates, workplace mandates for masking and for for being double vaccinated. And a lot of people felt like some of those took too long to put into place. What do you think? Uh, It was in the nick of time, if you know what I mean. And so, uh, no, I, I think they were done in time. The what a caution, though, is, of course, that not everybody has a choice to get vaccinated. People under 12 are not eligible at this point. And that's the that's the group that we're seeing um, skyrocketing numbers of cases in, because at this point, half of our population that's unvaccinated are under 12 years of age. And of course, who are they contacting? Mainly other unvaccinated kids. And so it's a way for the virus to spread within that community. So what do you think we should keep in mind when we hear those numbers today? Yeah, so if you if you hear numbers that, so <laughs> oddly, the numbers after weekend are always lower. Um, it's just a way of the reporting and how it happens. And so if we see some numbers in the 500s, that's, that's good. That means that we haven't seen um, the school-age kids rising too much. If you see numbers in the 700s, that's concerning, especially after a weekend. Okay, so you you still a little worried then when you see those numbers creep up into the 700s? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the thing about being uh, riding this wave at a stable level is it doesn't take much to get the wave to rise again or the wave to lower again. It's all about our behaviors as well as the um, 
public health orders that are in place. So it can go either way. And that's a very precarious place to be at the moment. It really is. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome, Timmy. Have a good day. That's Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at UBC, talking about the numbers coming up today at noon. She said if there was a lot of gathering over Thanksgiving, well, we won't see the results of that for another week or two, right? Fully, she said, about 10 days. But we are, you know, we put it surfing this Delta variant wave, kind of bent the curve down a little bit with the regional restrictions and the things that we've been doing, just not fully. And people, some people are frustrated by that. They would like to see the numbers come down even more. But we'll see what happens. And of course, we'll have complete coverage of that to you. Just keep it tuned in to 980 CKNW today. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is the day. If you're planning on visiting a loved one or a friend in a long-term care home, you must provide proof of being fully COVID-19 vaccinated. That is two doses. Also, staff need to be fully vaccinated. Now, these are two mandates that are put into place in the hopes of preventing more outbreaks at long-term care. You might remember last week about the Office of the Seniors Advocate releasing a report And these were among the recommendations to help prevent further outbreaks at facilities. So joining us now is Isabel McKenzie, the Seniors Advocate. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. Do you, are you somewhat pleased that this is going into effect today? Or do you think, I wish this had happened a couple of weeks ago? Well, you know, as with all things, um, I think we need to focus on it's happening now. And perhaps it could have happened sooner. But I think the important thing is it's happening now. And, And, you know, I think we're seeing that that there are some challenges to mandatory vaccinations in the workplace, particularly the healthcare setting, but they really are necessary. Uh, The the evidence is very, very compelling around the significant, significant drop we saw in outbreaks and in numbers of cases and case fatalities after the vaccine came into effect for residents uh, in long-term care. Are you surprised to hear the number about a thousand staff still not fully vaccinated? That's the number that Health Minister Adrian Dix kind of used. That seems like a lot of people. Well, there's a lot of people who work in healthcare. Uh, so, when my, my understanding is that as a percentage, it's about uh, hovering around less than ten percent of staff who are not fully vaccinated. And, you know, we've worked very hard to to bring people along. I give credit certainly to our public health officer who has tried the approach of encouraging people, of explaining the um, uh, how good these vaccines are, allowing people time to adjust to the idea, yes, I need to get vaccinated. But I think the time has come when we have to say, okay, the, the, it's not unreasonable now to expect people to get vaccinated, particularly those who work in a healthcare setting. Are you confident that that will happen? There's been concerns that some of them will quit. Unfortunately, I would expect that somewhere in BC, there is going to be a healthcare worker who will choose to not get vaccinated versus continuing to work. I don't think that it's going to create a crisis. I, I hope not, just given the numbers that we're looking at. And I think that we need to remember it's not a zero-sum game. So an outbreak in a care home also has a significant effect on staffing. 
one of the things my review found was that overall overtime was up by, I think, 68%. But in care homes that experienced a large outbreak, the overtime was up by 178%. So there's a huge impact when there's an outbreak because staff have to go home and isolate. Staff are off with COVID. The requirement for more staffing, irrespective of that, uh, compounds the issue. So when we think about it's going to create some staffing shortages because people are going to quit rather than get the vaccine, we need to remember that outbreaks in care homes, which are far more likely to be caused by unvaccinated workers, are also going to cause staffing shortages. So on balance, I think we've made the right decision to best protect residents and the other people who work in that care home. Right. So you're saying the staffing shortages wouldn't be as acute if we could keep the outbreaks out of the long-term care homes. That's correct. There's there, the, the, uh, an outbreak causes a significant increase in demand for staff. You need more staff. You need more staff because you're suddenly engaged in, in uh, donning and doffing PPE protocols. You've got to enhance and uh, all of your cleaning protocols and staff who are displaying symptoms, who test positive, who are in close contact and not yet testing positive, all have to be removed from the work site uh, while we we determine whether they're contagious or not. So, you know, that all has a big impact as well. Now, we I've been reading a lot about what's been going on over in the UK, Isabel, and the report that they just had out done by the government on the disastrous effect of COVID on their long-term care homes. Do you think we need to do a big kind of inquiry like that? I think that there needs to be a, 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 for want of a better word, a holistic review of what has been the impact on long-term care. Um, and we need to do that when we can look back, we can have complete data, we can compare jurisdictions, although most places did similar things at, by the end of the day across Canada. But there's a whole lot of questions, Simi, around what has been the total impact on the health and the health outcomes of the people that live there, the people that work there, and the people who operate the care homes? And, you know, we, you, you can't sometimes know what the long-term effects of certain things are until you have some distance to look back. So I certainly think that we need to, to have that kind of uh, reflection and study and analysis. Um, whether we're at the point in the pandemic where we can do that, because we're not done yet. Um, think about reviews we did after wave one. And wave one looked very, very different from wave two, wave three, and, and now in our wave four. So uh, the sort of uh, definitive study, uh, I do believe, needs to be done. I don't believe it's been done yet. And I, we may not yet be at a place where we can do that because we're not through this pandemic yet. Do you think these measures then going into effect today will help us curb these outbreaks? Absolutely. I think that uh, we've heard it's clearly, uh, uh, you know, when we, right now it's a pandemic in BC of the unvaccinated. We know from the review that we've done of the outbreaks of wave one and wave two, um, for to a large extent, uh, the vi- virus was introduced into the care home by uh, staff, many asymptomatic. This was pre-vaccine. Uh, so now we have a tool that will significantly uh, reduce the probability of the virus coming into the care home. And I think that requiring those who come into the care home, the visitors, the staff, 
to be vaccinated is not unreasonable and it will reduce the number of outbreaks we have given what we know about how this virus transmits and what create what caused previous outbreaks. Isabel, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, my pleasure, Simi. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you think maybe it's time to get out and try doing something a little different? How about checking out the Vancouver Art Gallery? They have a great new exhibit going on. It's called Growing Freedom. It's about the art of Yoko Ono and John Lennon. Our Raji Sohal is back with us this morning to talk about it. And Raji, you know, the Beatles are really big in the news this week. Yeah, they are, because yesterday Paul McCartney told the BBC that he's shouldered the blame of the Beatles' breakup for the last, oh, 50 years or so, and he says it was John who instigated the split. He said John walked into the room, said it was over like a divorce, and John Lennon said that the point of it, or Paul McCartney said the point of it was really that John was making a new life with Yoko and wanted to lie in a bed for a week in Amsterdam for peace. And knowing (laughs) that really colored the way that I saw this exhibit because the show is about a lot of things. But one thing it is about is this just awe-inspiring, really incredible relationship between two creative people that like one of whom was a huge musical success at the time that he said, hey, no, I want to do art. They were these romantics who tried to inspire the world through peace and love. And it's like the most optimistic story of any couple ever trying to do something like that. So the show includes some incredible footage of John and Yoko's bed in for peace, where they um, they invited journalists into their hotel rooms in Amsterdam and Montreal to try to get them to put peace, love and happiness in the news instead of all the the war and politicking that was going on. Um, and it's just a really charming show, but it is a conceptual show. So you can't go expecting to be dazzled by uh, extravagant or beautiful works of art because it's actually mostly black and white. Uh, it's the most black and white art exhibition I've ever seen. And you help make the art when you visit. So it's focused on Yoko's instructional works. These are pieces uh, she made where she asks you as the visitor to follow very simple instructions. So basically the visitor makes the work, participates in the work. Like there's a work where there's a tabletop filled with broken dishes, like smashed dishes, and you're asked to try to mend it using just tape and string. And it's really goofy. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just trying to think about that. That's a lot of work. It is. And it's goofy and fun and totally imperfect. And that's kind of the point of the whole uh, exhibition. The curator, Cheryl Sim, she organized the show. She told me about the first Yoko Ono piece that she experienced, uh, which inspired the show. And it was one where you're asked to just close your eyes, imagine lighting a match, and then imagine watching it burn down. It's um, one of those things where you, you know, you're moved every single time that you do, um, that you experience her instruction works. And also the idea that, you know, we really complete the works as visitors that uh, um, without us, they're, they're incomplete. And that, you know, this idea of the unfinished work is really important to her so that every time somebody completes it, um, an individual, we collectively kind of the work allows um, to be, to change and to grow and to constantly live this sounds very participatory. 
Yes, it is. Another piece, um, and this is the one, the first one that John ever experienced, really simple one where there's a ladder in the gallery and you climb up the ladder and once you get to the top of it, there's a tiny, tiny, minuscule word written on the ceiling and that word is yes. So that after all that effort in your life over whatever it is, the answer is yes. And another work asks visitors to leave a message for their mother on a sticky note and put it on the gallery wall for other visitors to see and read. And the answers, the responses were just incredible. I saw people doing another piece that asked them to write their life's wish and hang it onto a living plant. And I'm just witnessing these people walking around the gallery with smiles on their faces, little chuckles. Some people were tearful. By the end of it, you've been provoked to think about so many things you may never have. And you see all these people having this like uh, personal, private, reflective moment, but we're doing it collectively. It was a pretty incredible experience to me. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you think, Roger, this is like for this is really geared towards a whole new generation who perhaps didn't realize how what an impact John and Yoko had back in the day? Yeah, on um, on the music industry, obviously, um, with the Beatles, but then also they collaborated musically. And then in the art world, they had a huge impact. Prior to them, uh, people were going into art galleries and really just you know, over-congratulating and praising artists and these institutions that weren't very welcoming and putting artists on pedestals. And Yoko Ono came in there and said, hey, we're all artists. Like, what is art? Anything can be art and anyone can make art, including you and me and shoot your dog too. Like anyone can participate in this thing we call art. Um, So it's a very inspiring exhibition in that way. I saw people of all ages, like I saw very little kids participating in their own way. There's one piece that invites people to hammer a nail into the wall at the gallery and it's loud and it's abrasive and you're like wow I've never experienced anything like that in an art exhibition before (laughs) that actually scared me just you describing that I'm like hammering a nail into the wall at the art gallery (laughs) what well even that work I was talking about mend piece where you're putting together cracked pieces of dishes like they're sharp they're jagged uh, also potentially dangerous to walk up a ladder. But um, you just see people like doing these things more slowly than they normally would and just giving it a lot more thought. And the exhibition makes you realize how we don't do these kind of like meditative things in public very much at all. So to do them with other people around you collectively in that way and to get it wrong, to do it imperfectly, was, it's, it's a nice analogy for life in general. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so how long is this on for? Oh, great question. I don't know the exact date it ends, but it's just opened uh, for, let's see here. Yeah, it's a, it's just opened, just had its opening weekend. It'll be going for a couple of more months. And um, So get out I, there. I really recommend this show. It's a fantastic one. And for people who like grew up listening to the Beatles, I think it would be extra special. Just they would recognize a lot of the more nostalgic photography and video pieces in the ex- exhibition. I love it. All right. Thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. So, Raji Sohal talking about the latest exhibit at the Vancouver Art Gallery. It's all about Yoko and John, so check it out. It's about the art, and it's called Growing Freedom. This is Mornings with Simi. 
problem that we don't seem to be able to get a hold of, at least not yet. Our 911 call center has once again been warning the public of consistent, they said, wait times. That's just to connect with an emergency operator. And that's the second time in a week that we have had that happen. And Ecom took to Twitter overnight, urging people not to hang up if they got a recorded message during those delays. So is this the same problem that we heard about before? Does it really still come down to being unable to connect with an ambulance dispatcher. Well, joining us now is Jasmine Bradley, Ecom spokesperson and direct executive director of communications. Jasmine, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So what's the situation like now? Have things gotten any better? This past weekend was extremely concerning in terms of the wait times that we were seeing on 911 as a result of um, our staff being tied up trying to transfer calls to the ambulance service. So, you know, heading into the Thanksgiving long weekend, we knew it was going to be busy for emergency services and Ecom brought in additional staff anticipating that, you know, we could see some, some delays and unfortunately that was the case. So even though you knew that was going to happen, there, was there, there's nothing that can be done because once again, we can't get through to the ambulance dispatchers. Yes, I mean, it's it's a really concerning situation and we brought in additional staff to, to help um, ensure that there's more people answering those 911 calls on our end. But essentially, you know, if there isn't anyone available to accept these call transfers from the ambulance service, this problem isn't going away. So what can people do? Like, are they, last time we talked, I remember you had suggestions for people and I wonder, are people following those suggestions that you made? Uh, the more we can get the word out to people, the better. We're definitely still struggling with um, challenges around people hanging up, and we get it. I mean, you, you're calling 911 because you have an emergency. Um, you hear a recorded announcement. It's almost like it's a, a natural instinct to just hang up and keep calling, but we need people to understand that's not what what needs to happen. We need you to stay on the line and wait. Okay, so maybe you could explain it to us again then. How the system works. When someone calls 911, what exactly happens, Jasmine? So when you when you dial 911, your call will first come to Ecom, and one of our 911 call takers will answer and say, 911, do you need police, fire, ambulance? And then we confirm the location and transfer that call to the requested police, fire, or ambulance agency that you need. In the case of calls for the ambulance service, Ecom doesn't call taker dispatch for EHS. Those calls are transferred to BC Emergency Health Services, the provincial organization that's responsible for the ambulance service. So the challenges that we're seeing with delays on the ambulance side and why it's impacting 911 is because our 911 call takers have to stay on the line waiting with the caller until there's an available ambulance call taker to accept that transfer of the call. It means those 911 call takers are unavailable to answer other incoming emergencies that could be for police, fire, or more ambulance calls. So even though this has been talked about, we've heard the health minister respond to this. Jasmine, have you seen any kind of improvement over the last couple of weeks? Sunday was extremely concerning. I mean, on Sunday between midnight and 7 a.m., it was the peak of the wait times and the delays that we were seeing transferring calls to ambulance. The average time to speak to a 911 call taker at the front end of that call was about a minute and a half. But we know that callers had to wait longer. And um, the longest call waiting that we know of was almost 13 minutes. And that's unacceptable. 
That that's yeah, very unacceptable when you consider what people are calling for. Um, also, you know, we also talked about the fact that some people think not just hang up and try again. They also try to get other people to call, thinking that you know that will move things faster. None of that works, right? None of that works. It's the opposite. It, it actually means it's going to take longer to connect with a 911 call taker because you're going back to the start of the queue. And it also ties up the system, too. Um, another concerning trend that we've been noticing because our call takers, our 911 call takers are staying on the line waiting with callers until ambulance answers. They can hear background sounds and what's happening in the background. And um, You know, sometimes over the past few weeks, I've heard from our call takers saying that they can hear people in the background talking about how they're calling because they have a runny nose or they've pulled a muscle um, or have a really minor upset tummy. So, you know, I mean, these are all reasons that you shouldn't be calling 911. And um, I know that uh, BC Emergency Health Services have been promoting calling 811 for general medical questions and and guidance and advice. And we really want to remind people to use that important resource. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second here then, Jasmine. Is that that indicative of what people call 911 over, like small things like that? The ambulance service would have more information about those kinds of calls. But, you know, those are just some of the examples that I've heard from our staff waiting on the line to connect callers on 911 to the ambulance service. Okay, that's incredibly frustrating then. So people, so we clearly need to take a look at ourselves here too, don't we? To figure out like, what am I calling 911 for? It should be for people who are in the, in the most dire of emergencies. Absolutely. Anytime somebody needs immediate assistance from first responders, that is the time to call 911. There are so many other resources out there, um, including COVID resources, too. We've actually had, um, we've seen a little bit of an uptake, not in calls being transferred to the ambulance service, but just in general. We've seen a little bit of an uptake in calls from people with just general COVID questions. There's a lot of restrictions that are changing and coming and, and things are, are um, changing throughout the province. But we need people to get the information from the right sources. 911 is not that. Oh, boy. So are, your, are the people who work at Ecom trained, like, is that what you tell people when they call here? Like, are they spending minutes explaining to people what those restrictions are? Or do you say, listen, there's something called Google. You should be looking this up. Exactly. I mean, our call takers are wanting to, first of all, confirm that there isn't an emergency happening and they're just not being told about it right away, but then quickly getting those callers off the line, directing them to other resources. It's a big part of Ecom's public education messaging as well. And at times it feels like we're a little bit of a broken record saying the same thing over and over again, but people don't always seem to be getting it. So we'll keep on putting those messages out there. Yeah, I think you really need to, because when people hear about some of these ridiculous reasons why they call 911, I think we should all be paying attention to that. Um, Jasmine, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Jasmine Bradley, who's a spokesperson and executive director of communications for Ecom, talking once again about the scary delays that they have been having and trying to help people connect to the ambulance dispatcher system. That is the delays that you hear about on Ecom. It's not for police or fire. It is for trying to get an ambulance. But also... What about some of those reasons why people are calling to begin with? You do not call an ambulance if you've pulled a muscle. You do not call 911 to ask questions about COVID restrictions. You are just clogging up the system when you do that. So yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, inward looking we should also do about reasons why 
Some people are calling 911. Not everybody needs to do it. You should be taking a really hard look at that. If you're in an emergency situation, you really desperately need help. That's when you call 911.